Okay, so uh, welcome everyone to Durishad. This is the second class uh, today on uh, navigating uh, the employer-employee relationship with Rabbi uh, Jonathan Ziering. Uh, in this series, we explore a number of topics that address the nature of the employer-employee relationship, highlighting the rights and responsibilities of both sides. We encourage you to uh, turn on your video if you are able to. Also, uh, please feel free to ask questions uh, anytime. Uh, either uh, unmuting is okay, right, Rabbi Ziering, uh, during the class? Yeah, yeah that's, that's fine. Okay, perfect. And we'll yeah. also save uh, 15 minutes at the end of class for questions, I believe. Uh, you can also type your questions uh, in the chat box here on Zoom or as a comment on Facebook if you're watching us uh, live today. Uh, welcome as well. And with that, I'll turn this to you, Rabbi Ziering. Um, okay, great. Thank you, uh, Evie. Um, so just before we, we jump into the topic, um, I promised I would do this last week. So at the, uh, the top of the source sheets, I put um, several resources. Some are local to, uh, to this class and some are for, the, um, for this course um, more generally. Um, so I put here um, David Schnall's book, By the Sweat of Your Brow, Reflections on Work and Workplace in Classical Jewish Thought. Um, we'll see in this particular one, I put a few articles. Um, but also, uh, more broadly, um, if you really want to delve into some of these topics, there's uh, here Dinei Avodah um, Mishpat Evri by, uh, by, by um, Shalom Warhaftig. Um, the Chavetz Chaim is a book that we'll be addressing, Abad Chesed. Um, and in ge general, um, Ray Bloy, this is a bit um, denser and harder to uh, access, but really excellent if you're interested in these uh, topics. Uh, Rav Bloy was a, uh, was a rabbinical judge uh, here in Israel and wrote a, uh, I think it's right behind me, a uh, multi-volume set on uh, on all related issues like that it looks like this um, but it's recently been added to the um, to the responsa project for anyone who has access um, to that um, okay so uh, so last week we focused on on time management um, and uh, and the issue of working multiple jobs and focused primarily though not exclusively on uh, one aspect of this complicated employer-employee relationship, focusing on the the vantage point of the uh, mostly on the employee. Right? What do they owe to their employer? Um, and this week we're going to take a topic that goes to the other side of the equation um, that focuses on one of the responsibilities of um, the employer towards the employee, and we're going to and specifically the issue of paying uh, wages on time. Now I know the source sheet looks long. Um, as I <clears throat> heard many years ago from, uh, from Ray Brander um, when I was uh, at YU, uh, there are two types of source sheets. There are the, the source sheets that you expect to cover in this year and the source sheets that um, you give because you hope people are interested in the topic and you want them to follow up reading if they are interested. Uh, this is definitely of the, of the latter type. Um, so um, it's a bit, the, so the source sheet is long, but that's really, I've formatted the whole Gemara, so you can go through the Talmudic um, section yourself um, more in depth than we'll, we'll cover here if you want to go back to the topic. Um, but with that, with those introductory notes, we will launch into it. So um, if you see here in the, in the first source, the Torah forbids um, oppressing your friend, um, right? Don't oppress, don't defraud your fellow and don't steal. And then in that same verse, <clears throat> the Torah also prohibits do not delay the wages of a worker with you until morning, meaning pay the worker on time. And for some reason, um, the Torah pairs 
um, delaying wages, right? There's no indication per se that you're holding them, withholding them um, forever, that you're that you're planning on not paying, but even delaying um, for a little bit of time, um, and we'll see exactly how much time that is, is, uh, is considered a violation of um, do not delay paying the, the wages of um, an employee. And that is, as I said, paired with theft. Um, so it's clear that the Torah takes this very seriously, that once you have hired someone, once you have given them a job and you've committed to paying them, um, it is a very serious um, it is a very serious problem for you to not pay uh, on time. Now, that sort of broadly speaking, right? It's very serious. But um, to practically implement this, there's a lot of things we got to figure out. Um, what type of employer? What type of employee? What does it mean to delay? Um, how long is too long? Um, you know, the simple case here is you can't hold the wages with you until morning, which implies some sort of relationship where you're supposed to pay, as we'll see on the same day. Um, but we're going to have to ask in the modern context, uh, is this affected by, um, by custom, as we talked about last week? Um, I assume that most people um, here, um, and most people in general, I think the days are probably not paid um, by the day. There are some day workers or, um, you know, a... Uh, you know, I, I, you know, yesterday my the lock on my door uh, broke. We had to call the locksmith. So the locksmith comes and they expect to be paid as soon as they finish um, the job. But from my from my employer, I don't expect uh, to be paid the day of. My salary is paid on a monthly basis. Um, and I assume for many people, they're paid biweekly. They're, they're paid every other week. They're paid every week. They're paid every month. Um, but I assume most of us don't expect to be paid um, within twelve hours, twenty four hours, as we'll see. Um, so how does that affect? Um, the equation, what does this all say about um, this mitzvah and how it is, how it is applied um, in the modern context? So those are the questions we're going to have to, to deal with. Um, now, this mitzvah isn't just said once. It's, it's repeated again um, in Dvarim Chavdal, in source number two. Lo ta'ashok sacher ani ve'avyon me'achecha o me'gercha asher ba'artzecha b'sharecha. Do not oppress the poor worker and the destitute worker from among your brothers. Um, or the the ger, the sojourner, the convert, however you translate it, <coughs> who is in your in your land, in your gates, give him his payment on that day. Let not the sun set, for he is poor. The elav who no say at nafsho. And um, to it, or something like that, he lifts up his soul, right? I'm not going to follow directly here the JPS translation, because as we'll see, this is a little bit important. Um, but something with his life depends on his work, or he put his life on the line for his work. And there, and if you pay him on time, um, or do not not pay him in time, lest he call out to God and you will sin. So that is the other slightly more expansive formulation of this mitzvah. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of the of the laws, just based on the two psukim that we've seen or your intuition, why is this A, prohibited, and B, seemingly so bad, right, so terrible um, to delay paying the wages of your worker, right? What is the nature of this prohibition? What's the philosophy behind it? Um, what do you think, right? I'll open it to uh, suggestions and then... Um, I've put like two, two pages of different suggestions by, by classic commentaries. Um, and we'll see, right? Um, any suggestions? 
Well, not to pay is stealing and to delay it. Um, you're you're hurting the other person, but you know, it's depending upon it. You know, if, if you tend to pay it, but they're supposed to get it on a certain day and they don't get it, then they can't pay their their expenses. They may starve because maybe they're, you know, that dependent upon it, you know. Okay, so Diane says, I think, if I understand you right, says two different things, right? The first, building really on the first source that we saw is like, look, you made a deal. You said you're going to pay by the end of the day. If you don't, it's stealing. You might pay later, right? But you owe right now. And the fact that you're not paying right now is some sort of stealing. Don't try to, right? This is not so complicated. You don't have to explain why this is, is unique. You made a deal. You're not living up to it, right? You are stealing. That was point one. Um, the second point was, in addition... Right. In addition to, let's say, the general problem of not living up to um, your commitments, um, there is something unique going on here. So Diane suggests that, well, you know, your worker needs the money. Um, and if you don't pay, you are it's more than just it's not just stealing. It's also that. <clears throat> but you are um, preventing them from buying food for that day, from paying the rent from, I don't know, you know, they, um, they might have to take out a loan to cover things, right? All those things. Um, now, before I turn to, I saw a hand raise, I think it was Beth, I think, right? Let me see where the hand raises go. Um, but before I go, I go to Beth, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Beth, um, I just want to push Diane for one more second. Um, what, what in the psukim, what in the verses hints to you that that second part um, is, is true? I think it's right, but there's, what, what's the, what indicates in the in the verses that it's not just stealing, that there's yeah, something yeah. unique going on here? It's in Devarim right there. Right, four. exactly, right? Is the is the Pasuk in Dvarim, right? You don't get so much in the one in, in Vayikra, but the one in Dvarim, which says, because he's poor, because Elavu no seyet nafsho, he, something like his life depends on it, right? You could read that as, listen, it's also that most day workers, um, and we'll see commentaries who will make this explicit, most or many day workers um, were poor, right? I mean, part of the reason that, um, you know, salaried workers get paid, you know, the month and it's not such a big deal. And like in Israel, you know, I, I, I don't even remember what it's like, what the laws are in America. In Israel, you, uh, by law, you have like a, a grace period. Um, I think you have to pay by the ninth or something like that, unless you make a deal. Otherwise, ninth of the next month. Um, the reason is because most people, the assumption is you're not living hand to mouth in that way, right? You're not living that, you know, if I don't get it on the third, so then, right, what will happen, right? You, you know, maybe, you know, if really your, your you know, bank account is maxed out, at least in Israel, overdraft is like, they don't care at all, right? As long as, right, you can go into overdraft for a few days, right? Nobody cares, right? You have like an automatic, um, you know, it's one of those things you get used to when you come from America. Like I went to, I went to the bank once to ask them to extend um, the max on my credit card, um, not because I needed to pay it, but because there's these weird things with the credit card here that even if you pay in installments, your credit card needs to, in theory, be able to pay the whole payment in one shot for the payment to go through it all. Um, but they didn't understand what I was talking about. They thought that I wanted to open a line of credit to go into overdraft for that entire amount. I'm like, no, 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 I have the money, right? It's just my credit card literally won't go through. Right here, they don't care. So, you know, even if you go into overdraft, you'll be able to pay your bills for at least a few months until the bank says, okay, it's been too long. Um, but in the time of 
you know, the sukkim, that was probably not the case. The people really, really needed the food right now. Um, and so they needed payment. Okay. Um, wait, Beth, did you put your hand down? I'm not sure if this hand thing works. Um, and I see Deborah also has her hand up. Somebody else put my hand down. <clears throat> yeah, Beth, okay, that was so, me. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so Beth and then Deborah. I have a question. Yeah. And the comment, first of all, I have a, uh, well, maybe it's the same thing. The question and the comment are the same thing. Um, the qualification Kianihu would imply that if he's not an Ani, and how do we determine that anyway? It, this, this, those has say wouldn't apply. Very good. So, it, so first, as Beth notes that, right, as, right, so let's get right. First point, Beth is right, that a simple read of the, of the verse might, at least the verse in Varim, might indicate that this is limited to poor workers, however you define that, right? You could parry this, and we probably will halachically, by saying that there's a divide between the rationale for the mitzvah and its legal you know, application, because often there is a split between the philosophy and the, the law, the, the practical implementation. But you're right, right? That's a question we have to ask. Okay, that's first point. And then, that, and then yeah. I, also, yeah, I also wanted to ask if there's any other mitzvah in the Torah, I say, oh, lot, I say where, it, where it, they have that qualification. It doesn't say, lot, lot anihu. right, right. And Beth, right, 100%, that what, right, what's striking about it is that. Um, the Torah seems to draw attention to this, meaning we don't say don't steal because he's poor. Um, we do sort of see this in other cases, which are on this borderline of stealing. So for example, we do see something like that um, in the context of lending with interest, right? Where again, halachically, we assume that the prohibition, my phone is too loud here, um, that the prohibition applies even to rich people, but the Torah does seem to say that fundamentally, the reason you're supposed to lend money without interest is because the average person borrowing money is poor. Um, and that also, the Gemara says, lending with interest is a type of theft. It's not quite theft, but it's a mm -hmm. subsidiary of theft. So we, the, there are other cases where we actually see this um, in specifically the way that, that Beth says it, right? Where there's like this, right? Weird implication that this is not quite theft. It's theft because, um, um, you're dealing with a poor person. Okay, Deborah, and I see I also have a comment here from um, Ilana. So I'll take I'll take Deborah first, then I'll then 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 Ilana. Okay, Deborah. Um, so I wanted to, and it seems to me that most of the time the person paying the employees has more money, whatever it is, in relative terms, <clears> than <throat> the amount of money that they're paying the employee. And I think there's a danger that you'll say eh, it's just. 50 bucks who cares about 50 bucks it doesn't matter because from your perspective it's a very small amount of money but for, i think the torah is telling us to keep in mind that from the perspective of the employee it's an enormous amount of money and and because of the the difference because the money is much more important to the person receiving it than to the person giving it there's a danger that the person giving it won't take it seriously enough okay good so so deborah and we'll see that certain make this point um very similar to the way Deborah's making it, that maybe the Ani, not like the way Beth is saying it, that it's limited to only poor people, right? That would be one way of reading it. Deborah's saying maybe it's not limited only to poor people, but it's recognizing a reality in which on a relative scale, most employees are not as wealthy and not as well off as their employer. And therefore the word Ani, the word poor is coming to remind the employer that listen, you may not think this is a lot of money because to you it's not. Right to you, if you have the 50 bucks in your wallet today, right? If you deduct the $50 from your wallet today or tomorrow, it doesn't make a difference. 
So you might forget about it, but that person is not going to forget about it because $50 is a lot, right? Now, you might want to ask, as people do by the case of interest, what happens when that's not the reality, um, right? So like an interest, right? Many of the postcoms said, what about where you're, you know, you have a bond, right? So you're, you're the big guy, as it were, right? The bank is being lent the money at interest, right? So here you're by forbidding interest, you're protecting the wealthier, right? The government, the, the, the bank, right? Does that change the equation where it's clearly a different dynamic? Um, and sometimes you have this with employer and employee also, right? Like, you know, um, you know, at least here, um, you know, this is a little bit, this is a dip, you know, a very sort of a cultural divide between um, North America and Israel. <clears throat> but in, in, in Israel, at least, um, you know, blue, uh, blue collar workers, as they would call them, um, tend to make a lot more money than the average um, white collar worker, right? Like plumbers and electricians and people like that make a fortune here. Um, it's just the way thing, things are. So it, it's really the opposite, right? It's like when, you know, when like, uh, you know, my plumber comes in, I know that his salary is probably triple mine. Um, and how does that change um, the equation where he really can handle it um, in a way that maybe I can't? Um, okay, now let me just look at the comments. Um, okay, I see a comment from, oh, that's the sources before that. Ilana said, right. So Ilana said, maybe this is even broader, right? Maybe the reason that it is forbidden, that, that it's so problematic to not pay the, the wages on time is because it's as if you are making the person into a slave, right? If you pay them on time, so they are a worker, right? If you don't pay them on time, then they work for you for no pay, at least for a certain amount of time. Um, and at least they are now, right? So there's something sort of, I don't know, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, theologically, philosophically, um, you know, broadly speaking, you are relating to them as a slave rather than as an employee. And that, that's a problem. Um, which is very interesting, right? That that maybe it's it's more about your perspective, right? I Meaning yours, being the employer's perspective. Um, how do you look at this person? Um, okay, so let's let's run through a little bit of what the Mefarshim say. We won't read it all inside, but I've given to you here in the Hebrew and mostly, I think, every, most of it in the in the English as well. Um, so if you look um, at the Ramban, um, the Ramban, Nachmanides, in number three. <coughs> um, says, here, I'll just get the key line. Um, he picks up, as several people did, on the fact that the Torah draws attention to the fact that he is poor um, and says, yes, and so scripture commands the employer to pay him during his day as soon as he finishes his work and that the sun should not set upon him before he is paid in order that he should be able to purchase with his wages what he, his wife, and his children need to eat at night, for he is poor, as are most of those who hire themselves out for the day. He has staked his life upon this wage to buy with it food to sustain uh, his life. Um, right. So as um, several people pointed out, this was really um, Diane's second formulation. Um, and this is in response to, um, to Beth's question. Um, so to response to Beth's question, the Roman says it's not limited only to poor people. Right. It says poor because that was the norm. Right. Day workers were poorer than other people in society. So it doesn't legally limit it to poor people. But as Diane said, the reason that this is a different prohibition, and it's not just theft, um, it's not mere theft, is because um, there's this added level that here is this person who's poor, but he doesn't expect handouts, he doesn't expect, um, he or she doesn't expect handouts, doesn't expect, you know, someone to take care of them, on, you know, for, you know, for nothing, 
Um, they just, they work hard and they expect to be able to feed their family at the end of the day. And now you've frustrated that in such an unfair way. And that seems to be worse than mere theft, right? That's the Ramban. Um, the Bukhar Shor um, says, <clears throat> and this is, was Diane's first formulation, um, that no, this is a theft, but maybe it's like super theft. Um, and he says, Shomer Lo, he says to him, I'll pay you in five days. This is theft, not quasi-theft. It's theft on steroids. Right? If you steal, stealing's always wrong. But if you steal from a rich person, okay, you stole his, I don't know, his Rolex, his, 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 his third iPhone, right? I mean, it's bad. Don't get me wrong. It's bad, right? But he's not going to starve. But here, even without stealing, like taking something out of his pocket, you have now prevented him from eating. Right? His life depended on it. On it. And then he gets into a technicality. Um, the Chinuch um, in number five <coughs> adds another element. Um, and he says, again, he also highlights the fact that every wage worker needs his wage for his sustenance. Um, therefore, it's not fitting to delay his sustenance. Um, as it says, for he is needy and it urgently depends on it. Um, but then he further says, and this is a little bit different than, um, than Ilana, but it does focus on the, employer, the employer's perspective um, on life in general. He also says, God and his commandments command us to train ourselves in the, of, in, in the traits of mercy and kindness, and that we should bring the required portion to every creature in his time in order that we merit and receive his goodness as he is the one who desires to be good, as I've written many times. Right? So the Chinuch adds, part of it is that um, it's just, it's an attitude problem, right? Your worker is someone you're supposed to take care of. And here you are, and you just, you're not sensitive to what they need, right? And that is, and, and the perspective, in addition to what you're actually doing, it belies a certain perspective that's very problematic. Um, the Orachayim um, in number six, um, and this goes to, um, to what Deborah said, um, though from a slightly different perspective, because it's not just the fact that he's poor. Um, the Orachayim picks up on the fact that it's, uh, he calls the worker Re'echa, your friend. Um, and the Orachayim says that the reason the Torah describes the injured party as Re'a, a colleague or friend, um, is to warn us not to presume on the other party's friendship towards us to shortchange them what is due to them. One must not play loose with a friend's money because he is one's friends and presumably will not voice his objection for the sake of preserving uh, the friendship. And the Archaim says, the reason you have to tell is this. Now, I would have said it differently. I would have gone more in the direction of Debro, but um, right, what he says is that part of the issue here is the perspective, is that you might not realize what you're doing is wrong. Why? Because he's your friend. He's not going to say anything. Without him saying anything, you won't notice. Now, I might have reformulated the way Deborah did, which was, it's not just that he's your friend, right? He might be your friend, but that um, he's someone you have a relationship with, but you hold the power, usually. Uh, and therefore, you don't really understand, right, their situation, and they may not say anything. And therefore, the Torah has to be their advocate and say, listen, uh, it is a big deal. You may not realize it's a big deal. They may not want to say anything, either because they're your friend or because, you know, they're afraid you won't hire them in the future, right? So the Torah has to advocate for the worker. Um, the uh, the Shalah um, in number seven adds a more broad sort of theological approach um, that God 
uh, that you are undermining God, right? God um, wants people to, right, supports every being in the universe um, in the proper time. And God wanted your worker to be able to put food on his table because you paid him for the job he did. That was how God arranged things on Rosh Hashanah. And you are messing with this because he did the work and now he deserves <clears throat> to be compensated on time and to be able to put, put food on his table. And you are messing with God's um, plan. Um, okay. Um, the, the last point, there's a, there's a few more here. Um, <clears throat> one more that's pointed out um, that I think is relevant is the fact in the Gemara is often invoked to mean that um, he puts his life in danger. Or let's say he's, um, he has to climb to the top of the tree to get fruits um, and pick them. Um, it's particularly egregious for you to hire someone to do a dangerous job and then not pay them because they put their life on the line for you. And now, eh, you know, the fact they need to put food on the table, you don't care. Right? And that seems to also be part of this, um, this mentality. Um, okay, so when you put all this together, what we get is that um, not paying your workers on time <clears throat> is not just theft. It is failing to recognize the unique power dynamic here between the employer and the employee. It's failing to recognize um, how much the worker puts on the line to work for his, right? And we, we you know, this, you know, it, this Gemara, right, this idea that he puts his life on the line, and that might be why, right, this notion, not this Gemara, this notion that that's why you have to pay on time, right? Whenever I saw anything about, um, you know, healthcare workers on the front lines um, or, or cashiers at, uh, at grocery stores who were saying, right, you're not taking care of us, you know, we're not getting the wages that we need, and we're putting our lives on the line, right? You are wealthy enough and you can order everything to your house on whatever, right? On Amazon Fresh, right? But here we are in, in the stores and we're, we don't know, we might get sick, right? This was before vaccines, before there were enough masks and everything. At least pay us or at least give us respect, right? That idea, love no say enough show, right? Show respect to the fact that you've hired someone, they're doing a job, it's not necessarily safe, right? And to not even acknowledge that and to not even respect their rights, right? That is, there's something really particularly egregious um, about that, right? It's a violation of the relationship of the employer-employee uh, relationship. Okay, so that is sort of the philosophical background to this. And like I said, this is the opposite of last week, right? Here, you have a mitzvah, which basically from every perspective that you take it highlights the unique responsibilities that an employer has for the for the well-being of, of his employee. Okay. Now, um, what I gave you next is as you can see, I put the central sugya. Um, what's interesting about this topic um, is it basically appears one place in the Gemara, one in a very long sugya that goes over several pages. Um, but it's really quite focused. Um, and therefore, if you want to read through the entire Talmudic um, section and get a feel for it, it's really not that hard. You don't have to like run around through all of the Talmud and figure out where is this, right? Um, you know, there's this uh, this um, responsum from the Rambam, um, from Maimonides, that someone once asked him, uh, where is the source for a particular law? Um, you know, the Rambam famously didn't write the sources. So he said, where is it from? The Rambam said, I think it's in this Talmud, this tractate. So the guy looks and he says, eh, it's not there. He says, okay, maybe it's there. And then he kept looking. Um, and eventually the Rambam remembered, oh, it was like a throwaway line in this Masechet 
look there. And then the Rambam says, like, you know, I wrote the book and I don't know where the sources are from anymore. I don't know how anyone else is going to use this book. Um, and bemoans the fact they didn't put sources. Um, this is not one of those laws where if you're not, you know, keeping track of all the throwaway lines, you're not going to get it. You will. It's in one place. And therefore, what I did was I gave you the entire sugya. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I broke it up for you as separate things. Um, all the topics you can see with subheadings of um, all the different issues. So if at any point you want to go to the, the Gemara and see different issues, um, it's there for you. Okay. So I just broke it up for you with the translation um, from the, from the Koran, um, from the Koran Talmud. Um, but we're going to try to get some of the basic issues in the, in the half hour that we have left. <clears throat> okay. So this sugya is in, in Bava Mitzi, in, in the ninth, in the ninth parak. Um, and the Mishnah tells you as follows. Um, this prohibition applies whether you're hiring a person, um, you're, you're renting an animal, or you're renting utensils. Um, it has both of these prohibitions. But then the Mishnah puts a very severe limitation on it. When he claims it. Lotivao, if he doesn't ask for his money, inovera love, he doesn't, um, he doesn't violate. Himcheu etzel chenvani, etzel shulchani. If you deposit the money by a third party, also inovera love, you no longer violate. Sachir bismano nishba. I'm going to leave this um, aside. Um, and it gets into some of the issues of um, of swearing and how do you prove things. Okay. Um, so now let's run through a few of the of the topics that the Talmud brings up, because some of them are very surprising. So first of all, as we noted, the verses emphasizes pay on that day. So what exactly is the time frame? So the Mishnah says um, that a day laborer collects his wages from his employer all night following his work shift. A night laborer collects his wages all the following day, while an hourly laborer collects his wages all night and all day. With regards to a weekly laborer, a monthly laborer, a yearly laborer, or a laborer for a sabbatical cycle of seven years, if he left upon the completion of the work in the day, he collects his wages all day. If he left at night, he collects his wages all night, uh, all night and all day. Right. So the Talmud, so the Mishnah tells us that what does it mean be yomo on his day? So it's, it's very simple. If he's a day worker, so it's the following shift. So the night. If he's a night worker, then you have one shift. Um, past when he works to pay him back. So you have the day. Um, if he's an hourly worker, so then you have a whole day um, because presumably um, it's not clear exactly when his job ends because he's working by the hour. So it might go from day to night. So you have a full day. Uh, and if he works for a longer period of time, so then he has the work period, either day or night from after he finished the job. And how do we know this? The Talmud says, the sages taught from where is it derived concerning a day laborer that he collects his wages all night? The verse states, the wages of a hired laborer shall not remain with you all night until the morning. And skipping down, and from where is it derived concerning a night laborer that he collects his wages all day, as it is stated, on the same day you shall give him his wages. But why not say the opposite, i.e. that a night laborer may be paid all night while a day laborer re receives his wages all day? The Gemara responds, the obligation to pay a person's wages incurred only at the end of the period for which he was hired, right? So the first point the Talmud says is the day is the day at which the um, salary comes due. 
And when did the salary come due? At the end of the job. And then you have one work period. So a day, if he worked during the day, so he, you only owe him the money at the end of the day. Therefore, you have the whole night to pay him. If he worked all night, so then the job is finished in the morning. So therefore, you have all day to pay, right? That's the work period following the end of his job. <clears throat> that seems pretty simple, okay? That, it's not so controversial, I think, right? It's, if it's that day, the day is, you know, once the job is finished, now you own the money, now you have time, you have a few hours that you have to pay. What's shocking is the next move that the, the Talmud makes. The Talmud says, okay, but what happens if you didn't? So now the Talmud says something shocking. <clears throat> Let's say you didn't. Let's say you failed to pay on time. So now what? So my intuition would be, wait, if it's prohibited to pay him 12 hours late, so paying him 36 hours late or 72 hours late or 100 hours late is even worse. The Talmud says, ah, not really. Once the period is over, that's it. You violated the prohibition and it's done. Um, at least the primary one. Mikan va'ilach, my, so is it really, is that true? I mean, okay, I violated one prohibition. God will smite me, smite me. Okay, but now I don't have to do anything. I'll pay you in 20 years, who cares? So Amarav over Mishum Bal Tisheh. There's a secondary prohibition, which is don't hold the money with you. Um, now this seems already surprising. Right, that, um, right, because if right everything we said at the beginning is true, that you know this is a unique type of theft. He needs it for food. He's in a bad situation. You're treating him like a slave. All those things are true. Then you would think the more time you wait, the worse it is. And yet the Talmud claims at least the the primary prohibition. Um, once it's violated, it's violated. It's done. Okay, you shouldn't have done it. <clears throat> now that already indicates that something weird is going on here. Um, then in probably the most shocking of all the laws, um, the Talmud says this, and it's very disturbing. <laughs> and everyone tries to figure out how this could possibly be true. Um, and that is hire, what happens if you hire him indirectly? So the Talmud says as follows, <laughs> if you tell someone else, please go hire me workers, Nobody possibly violates the prohibition of delaying payment. The employer doesn't violate because he didn't hire them. And the manager, let's call him, does not violate because they're not his workers. And therefore, nobody violates. That's it. Nobody violates. Now that is um, very, very, very disturbing, right? That's very odd, right? Because if you take this, I mean, what does that mean? Meaning, so you're telling me that I don't know, not to pick on anyone. I don't, you know, I, I have no reason to believe that any of these people don't pay on time, but I don't know. Take whatever billionaire CEO you want to take, okay? Uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, I don't care, right? So they don't hire all the factory workers themselves. They, uh, you know, their managers do it, whatever, right? So are you telling me, so Amazon can never violate Baltalin? I mean, that, that, that seems quite extreme, um, right? 
<clears throat> and uh, and even if you'll say, okay, they, their their manager is their boss, right? He signs their checks. Okay, so if they hired a consulting company to be their go-between, so then no one can violate Baltalin, right? That's the solution. You don't want to pay your workers on time, so hire a you know hire a consultant, hire a you know whatever, right? It's like the the people who hire outside companies to fire their workers. But it's not my fault. I hired some to fire. I don't have to deal with the fallout, right? This seems very very odd, right? Because we talked for half an hour about the philosophy of this mitzvah, of why it's so important for the employer to respect the employee's um, sacrifice and his his need. And here we come and say, yeah, but you know, first halacha, if you miss the payment date, so at this point, the primary prohibition, you don't violate again. And you know what? You don't want to. You want to get out of this whole thing. So so hire someone else to hire your worker. Then then it's all okay. So, so what could this possibly, possibly mean? Okay, so because we don't have all the time in the world, um, I want to at least focus on this issue because I think this issue really does um, force us to ask, what is the Torah thinking in this prohibition? Now, I'll just run through and you'll see here in D, you have the discussion about day workers versus night workers. So if you want to look into the details of how that works out, look there. Uh, in E, um, the Talmud just highlights, this is really, really bad. Um, and the Talmud argues that if you do violate it, um, you violate five different prohibitions. Don't steal, don't oppress a hired laborer who's poor, don't delay payment. On the same day, you shall give wages and the sun shall not set upon him, right? So the Talmud views this as five separate prohibitions. So the Talmud definitely thinks that when you do violate it, it's very bad. Um, section F um, focuses on the issue of claiming, um, right? The importance of claiming um, in G, the Talmud proves um, that even if at some level, um, you know, it's worse when you don't pay the poor person, um, and this was um, this was Beth's point before, um, that you still do violate uh, with a rich person. Um, and the, the Gemara goes through the proofs um, for that. Um, in H, the Talmud brings up what we mentioned already before, this idea that part of why it's so bad to withhold wages is that um, much of the time work was dangerous. Um, and therefore, by not paying him, you're not respecting the danger uh, he went through. I um, mean, I, you get the source for the claiming requirement. Um, and then the, the Gemara and J, and this is very important practically. Um, so maybe we'll just look at this for a second before I get back to the messenger issue. Um, notes that... Um, this only applies to a, a, um, a wage worker, but not a contractor. Um, because, um, it, again, the Gemara gets through a bit of a conceptualization here, but the Gemara assumes that at least according to one view in the Talmud, um, when you hire someone to, let's say, uh, you hire a tailor. So the tailor is not really working for you. The tailor is selling you the final product. And therefore, it's not really a wage until right, you're buying the finished product from them. And even if you gave them the material, um, by improving the material and turning the silk into a fancy whatever, um, that silk garment now became the tailors. And therefore, they're more of a seller than an employee. Um, so at least according to that position, um, the laws might be uh, different. Uh, and then if you continue in the Talmud, the Talmud gets to the question of how does a employer prove um, that, um, sorry, an employee prove that they weren't paid in a case where things are unclear. Okay, so those are the issues 
uh, that we have. But like I said, I at least want to touch on this messenger uh, requirement because, um, you know, I think when you look at the law, you look through the Talmud, you see that it has five prohibitions. It highlights that he's risking his life and he has no food. This really is very serious, right? The Talmud, the verses really do emphasize that the employer has such a significant obligation to his employee. And then the Talmud turns around in a shocking moment and says, yeah, unless you hire that employee through a messenger, right? You don't want to worry about this violation? No problem, right? Get a manager, get a consultant, get in, go between, get your agent. As long as you have an agent, so what? So now get around to pay them when you want, but there is no prohibition. Doesn't that sort of destroy every theoretical construct that we built up to explain this law? Um, okay, I have a su suggestion. Oh, Deborah asked in the chat, can the tailor refuse to deliver the suit until he gets paid? Yes, right, that's the assumption, right? Um, that I think that's part of it, is that because Uman Kone Bishvach Kli, because the tailor now owns the clothing, um, he holds the power, right? You don't pay, so he's holding on to the clothing until you get it, and that, and that power dynamic, right? Where now, you know, it's not like the job is done, and now all the power is in the employer's hands. Um, the fact that the tailor can say, you don't pay me, I'm holding on to your suit, right? Or I'm holding on to your dry cleaning or whatever, you know, it might be. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that's exactly it, right? That that power dynamic um, changes it, that he's really a salesman, right? Um, and, and yeah, you know, when you go into a store and you don't pay um, right away, so, you know, you're, I mean, the, the store owner might be annoyed, but the store owner is likely to just say, well, okay, I'm not giving you what you want to buy. I mean, you know, you don't want it, so don't pay. You know, I don't care. Um, I mean, I do care, but, you know, there, it's, not, it's not the same power dynamic. And I think that is part of it. Um, okay, but how do we deal with this messenger requirement? So <clears throat> here I'm going to really draw on an excellent article by, um, by Rabbi Chaim Seyman. Um, um, his family should have... Uh, um, I should find Nechama. They had a his niece. He posted his niece passed away, um, like seven year old niece this this week. Um, so I guess this should be Leilu Nishmata that we're learning uh, his Torah. Um, um, he writes an excellent article uh, on this topic, um, and he uses this topic to really show how, as you know, as much as we want to look at these laws to you know, as we call this course, navigate the employer-employee relationship to take insight from the classic halachic topics for practical everyday life. Um, sometimes it's really hard because of certain exceptions and certain assumptions and certain realities <clears throat> that, that guide the, the at least the classic application of the sugya. So he, so he highlights this sugya, this topic, to really ask the question, well, how do we implement it? So here he notes that there are several models. So the first thing he points out is the Ritva. The Ritva <coughs> writes, Zel Tema. This is shocking. Right. Everywhere else in the Torah, your agent is like you. So maybe you'll say, well, we don't apply the rules of agency to the disadvantage, right? To the to the employer's disadvantage. But I still don't get it. It's not like the Talmud got this from a verse. There is no verse. So the Ritva just looks at it. And what the Ritva provides for us is 
um, that same shock, right? Where he looks at it and he says, I don't know what this is. Right? Like, what is this? You know, really is if this law is gonna be relevant in the real world, how did the Talmud, as he puts it, come up with a law that seems to have no textual basis in the Torah that basically allows you to eliminate this law by hiring a messenger? I mean, what what is this? How do you explain it? Um, so <clears throat> now the Meshachachma, you can read it in 14, tries to ground it biblically. He he get you know gets into the technicalities of how do you fit the words to maybe hint at it, but that, you know, that only explains where it comes from the verse. It doesn't explain what's going on. So here, um, Saman notes that really you've got to ask, you know, this really opens the door to how we conceptualize Torah in general. Now he's using this to really um, explore what's known as the Brisker methodology. I don't want to get too much into that here, um, but I did give you some quotes so you can look at it. Um, now, he notes that some commentaries really don't explain it. Uh, and Rashi and the Meshachachma, they really seem to say, listen, you're right. It's a what we call a katuv. The Torah said it. There's no explanation. That bothers you? I don't know what to tell you. Okay? It seems to make the law potentially irrelevant. Okay, I don't know what to tell you. The Torah said it. Deal with it. Now, that is approach. That is an approach. But if you have that approach then what you've accomplished is maybe you formally explain the rule, but you haven't explained the rule in a way that makes it relevant or understandable. You might be okay with that. It might even be true, um, but there's a cost to that type of move. Um, and then he you know, offers a, uh, a formal construct. You can read through it of how exactly this works. But as he said at the end, this leaves you with the obvious why, right? It still leaves you with a why. Um, okay, so how can you answer it? So here he has several approaches and I'm just gonna try to run through them. Um, and yes, uh, um, Wilhelmina notes that, yeah, that this, to understand this, you do need to go to sort of other agency cases um, where, um, you know, there, there are sort of weird rules around agency. Um, and to fully understand it, you might have to go to, uh, to some of those other cases in, in different contexts. That's definitely true. Um, okay, but how do we resolve it and, and maybe make this relevant and keep these laws, which really, as we said, set up such a paradigm that the Torah really recognizes the power dynamic um, and the upper hand that the employer has and the need to protect the employee. How do we save that? Um, from this seeming technicality that allows every employer to just hire a consultant, hire an agent to hire everyone and then not have to worry about these laws at all. Um, so here he suggests several models. One is what he calls incorporating Agadan Tahalacha. One is to say, listen, um, you're right. Technically, this is a way out, but the Torah system is broader than just what I can technically technically get away with by following the letter of the law. Um, and if you incorporate the Agadah or the broader principles, um, then it could be that, yes, maybe on a technicality, you didn't violate this law if you hired your employee through an agent. But let's be honest, you missed the spirit of the law, and that means something. Um, and for this, he, he points to the Zohar. Um, and the Zohar writes, the wages of a hired man shall not remain with you until the morning. Come and see, one who withholds 
<clears throat> the wages of a poor man, it is if he takes his life and the life of his entire household. Just as the employer diminishes the worker's soul, so too God diminishes the employer's days and cuts off his soul from the next world. For all the breaths which issue from the poor man's mouth, the breaths of the entire day ascend and stand before the Almighty. And the worker's soul and the souls of entire household ascend and stand in those in those breaths. Thus, even if length of days and many blessings had been di directed for the decreed for that man, they're all withdrawn. Thus, even if length, um, okay, I, I copied that. Okay. Um, so the czar, he notes, expands the value here, right? That the worker's family depends on this and that the cries of the worker are going to have metaphysical form and, and go up to, to, to God. Um, now, he notes that certain postkim, right, sort of incorporated this idea that it's clearly important and so many people's lives depend on this so you can't get out of it with a technicality while not denying that the technicality exists so his model here is the Shulchan Archarav, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe um, who writes that the greatest of the sages were accustomed to hire workers via an, age, via an agent in order that they had come to that they not come to violate the Halana prohibition if they are occupied and no opportunity to make payment during the required time period nevertheless if the owner can pay the worker on time, this is preferred, and he should not rely on the condition, for he is poor, and he has set his heart on it, right? So model one is to say, listen, there's the letter of the law, and there's the spirit of the law. The letter of the law, you're right, it exists. I don't know why, but it exists. But it's so against the spirit of the law. And therefore, the compromise that the Shulchan Aruch Harav came up with was, if you want hire your employee through an agent so that if you forget to pay, you won't violate the technical prohibition. But don't do it because that's wrong, right? Because that's not what the Torah wanted. It's clearly a loophole. I don't understand the loophole. It exists. I can't deny that. But, you know, don't use it. So that's one model is to say that we don't just look at this law as a law, but we look at it as a, an expression of a value. And therefore, even when the law doesn't apply, and even if you can get around it, the everything we talked about in the first 20 minutes about the philosophy of this and recognizing the power dynamic and recognizing how the employer employee and his family depend on the salary, take that into account, take it seriously, even if you can escape the technical legal problem. So that's one approach. Um, the second approach um, is what he calls the reasonable standard model. And this he bases on the Tosa Rid. I'm skipping around a little bit. Um, the Tosa Rid says, nah, it's very simple. Um, the norm was that if you negotiate through an agent, the worker knows he might not be paid on time because the employer is paying him and he's not talking directly to the employer. And this was apparently just understood. And that's the only reason that this works is because as we asked all the way at the beginning, what happens if the norm changes, right? What happens if the norm is not to be paid that day? So the Tosa Rid tells you that in the Talmud, there was a case in which people weren't paid on that day. And that was when you were hired by an agent, right? If you were hired by a manager or by an agent, sometimes what would happen is I would send my agent, I would say, hire a bunch of workers and tell them to come to me and I'll pay them. And you knew that because of that divide, it might be that you wouldn't get paid on that same day. 
And therefore, what the Rid says is what this law teaches us is that the obligations, this sort of objective idea that the employer must pay on time is balanced by the reality of the working relationship. And if the norm was that you're not paid on that day, then that's the norm, right? And what he's getting at is that the law really isn't pay on the same day. It's pay on the day that you're expected to pay. And if you're not expected to pay on that day and there's leeway, and that's what everyone understood going into this. So then there's leeway, that's all. And what the writ is introducing is the idea that this law is controlled and affected by what people understand. <clears throat> um, now, not every modern posik accepted this, and I gave you here a discussion by um, Ravuzner and Shaped Halevi. Um, okay. <clears throat> now, based on the reasonable standard model, um, the Chavetz Chaim puts a very important limitation, and he says, if that's true, then this is only the case when the employer, the employee rather, knew that the person hiring him wasn't the actual employer, right? Because if the only reason that, in, that you're not obligated to pay on that day when you have an agent is because that's not normally what was done, then the employee needs to know that he's not being hired by the employer and therefore won't be paid on that day. But if he doesn't know Right? You send an agent to present himself as the employer, so then the employee didn't sign on to this. And therefore, um, it's not true. Right, It's just not true. You have to pay on, um, on that day. Um, so this is model, model two. Um, okay, see we're running short on time. So <clears throat> um, what I'll, just to summarize so far, what we saw at the first 20 minutes or so that philosophically, the Torah clearly understands the problematic, um, not problematic, the power dynamic in an employer-employee relationship and seems to try to um, advocate for the employee through this halacha. On the other hand, it seems to throw in weird leniencies, like you don't have, if you hire through a messenger, you don't have to pay on time. How do we deal with that? So possibility one is we recognize that there are sort of weird um, exceptions to this rule, but we still try to be true to the spirit of the law, not just the letter. The second model is to say no. The reason, it's not really you have to pay on the same, on the day. What you have to do is pay when you're expected to pay. And what the messenger requirement is coming to teach us is that if everyone understands you're not gonna be paid on that day, then that's fine, right? Then that is fine. Um, okay. Now, if that's the case, um, the first model gives us sort of a, a spirit of the law guidance for how to deal with employee-employee relationships. And the second model provides the, the balance, which is in addition to the formality, you need to always examine the expectations of the people um, actually working. Okay, we only have five minutes left. So here, I want to let me sort of map out what else I put on the sheet for further reading. Uh, so here I gave you in 28, I gave you um, Chaim and Seyman's, uh proposal for how to understand um, the law, right? And um, and a lot of what we've said emerges from, from that, right? The, 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 um, the value of the spirit of the law, um, incorporating 
um, sort of expectations into it, the expectations of the employer and the employee into the into the formal law. Um, and he and he builds what I think is a very um, cogent um, framing for this this sugya. Um, in the four minutes I have left, um, so I gave you just a lot. As you can see, now it switches to Hebrew. That's usually when I just gave you a lot if you want to read more. Uh, so I gave you a lot of, of practical implementations. Um, what I want to make sure to note here is the following. Um, Benny Brown has a really important article on this topic um, where he notes that until basically the, the 19th, 20th century, um, the idea of, and this we mentioned this last week, of, em, of employee or labor relations being different, being something conceptually different than um, contract law, right, more generally, um, wasn't, it, it just didn't really exist as a separate discipline. Um, but then with the Industrial Revolution and, um, you know, all the, the, the sort of systematic philosophies about economics and employer-employee relationships, whether it be Adam Smith or Karl Marx or anybody else, um, the world was really thinking about employment as a unique category. Uh, and therefore, um, he notes that the Chavetz Chaim has a book, Avad Chesed, and I gave you long sections of it here. Um, if you want to read it on the source sheet, I'm not going to read it, but I gave it to you if you can look at, where he... Um, basically takes this law and makes several conceptual jumps. We saw just one of it, right? The idea that um, if you hire someone with an agent, that doesn't remove the obligation to pay on time unless the worker knows, right? Because the Chavetz Chaim comes and says, um, obviously you have to pay on time if the employee thinks he's going to be paid on time. Brown notes that the Chavetz Chaim makes many moves like this and writes basically half of a book Right, he has a book called Avad Chesed, 50% of which is on this halacha. And throughout that book, he makes a lot of conceptual um, jumps that um, increase the rights and strengthen the rights of the employee. And what Brown argues is that a careful reader of the Chavetz Chaim um, shows that he took this law uh, and basically either teased out positions or expanded positions to construct an entire um, theory of employment. Um, in halacha that protects workers. Um, and it's not, so to, it's not inauthentic, it's just that it is definitely novel um, and the presentation is novel. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, there, there are some interesting points that I think are important to deal with. Um, there is a discussion in the, in the Rishonim, um, if we agree on a date, um, to be paid, which is not the day after I work. Do I violate Baltalin uh, if I fail to pay by that date? That's a dispute between Rashi and the Me'iri. Um, the commentaries, I gave you just a little bit of a summary here. Um, get into the question of, after everything we've talked about, um, is this really a purely monetary law or does the theological talk show you that this is also a, um, a, a ritual law? Um, what exactly is the impact of explicit conditions by the employee <coughs> or the employer that I won't pay you for a certain number of days? Um, most authorities assume that that's fine um, because these laws are affected by what the employer and the employee worked out between themselves. The Zohar might not believe in, in this. Um, there's a fascinating discussion in the post about guys, uh, people in Kolel. Um, because Kolel 
traditionally is not conceptualized as payment. It's called schar batala, right? We pay the people in Kolel to not do something else uh, and then expect them to learn all day. Um, so the postgame get into the question, so can a Rosh Yeshiva not pay his Kolel guys on time? Um, or um, because they're formally not working for you? Or do you look at the spirit of the law and say, yeah, but the point of the law is if you owe someone money by a certain date so he can feed his family, the starving Kolel guy goes in that category. Uh, so that's an interesting sort of modern um, iteration. Um, the post can have interesting discussions about checks, right? Where I give a check, but they can't necessarily clear it today, um, right? Or a post-dated check, right? How does that play into it? Um, and obviously, as in many areas of halacha, um, you have to ask questions about corporations that complicate it because they might not have halachic personhood. Um, all those questions are fascinating. And as you see here in number 35, I gave you the entire section of the Pitchei Choshen with some key footnotes that I picked out if you want to look through um, some of the more complicated practical issues that come up uh, in modern halacha. Um, so there is the reading material um, if you are, are interested in following up on the topic. Um, but I'm only one minute over time to get my main points across, which again um, is to summarize that um, this law clearly shows the, the sort of complement of last week, which is how much the Torah does try to advocate for the uh, employee. Um, we also saw through the analysis of the messenger requirement, um, one, the possibility of not just settling for the details of the law, but recognizing the spirit of the law and allowing that to guide us as we construct a halachic um, ethic of employment. Um, two, from the RID, um, the idea that there's a reasonable standard um, model that you know you can negotiate things. And in addition to the letter of the law, the actual expectations of the people working and hiring um, are relevant. Um, and we made Benny Brown's point, which is um, that it isn't just that I'm suggesting in theory, this can act as an important topic to sort of build um, in a, a halachic theory of employment. Um, but if you read Brown's article, and again, I put the reference at the top of the page, um, and it's, it's available on academia.edu, so you can read it, uh, read it there in, in, in its entirety. Um, the Chavetz Chaim seems to actually have done that, to construct an entire um, theory of employment law um, as a separate discipline out of this um, halacha. Um, and therefore, um, this really is a great place to balance what we talked about last week, where again, last week we talked about how much halacha expects from employees. This week we see that the Torah expects also a lot, either legally and definitely morally, from the employer. I'm especially recognizing the power dynamic um, that goes on and the disadvantage that the employee is often at. Um, okay, I'm three minutes over time, but I will stay for questions. Um, and that is at least the, the opening of this, of this topic. <clears throat> so yes, we will uh, take questions for the next about 12 minutes. So feel free <clears throat> to uh, raise your hand or uh, write questions in the chat or just simply unmute and speak if you feel comfortable. Uh, uh, next week's topic. Okay, uh, next week's topic. Um, so if the first week we dealt with the obligations of the employer, uh, employee, this week we talked about the employer. Next week, um, following the concept, we're going to talk about how those are balanced um, and we're going to talk about uh, two topics, hopefully quickly, um, is labor unions um, and, and a related topic, which is striking, right? So really is how does halacha view um, the mechanisms by which employee, employees um, shift the balance of power 
um, a little bit more in their uh, in their direction, right? So that's the question that we're moving, right? That's sort of the uh, the thought process here, right? So one week on a topic that typifies the employee relationship, one week that it typifies the employer relationship, uh, and then um, the case of halacha's recognition or lack thereof of unions and striking. Um, how does halacha allow employers and employees to sort of leverage their their respective power um, against each other? So that's next week's topic. Um, Okay. Um, yes. Any other any other questions besides for next week's topic? Um, the other topics I can. Whew, the other topics. Um, again, the the concept for the class was again employer employee um, somehow balancing power. Uh, one week at the moment is least on um, plan to be on whistleblowing, um, and um, right sort of the moral responsibilities of employees in a problematic context. Uh, one week on. Um, how do you deal with unethical um, bosses, employers, employees, something like that? Um, so it's sort of two weeks on on those topics of how do you deal with problematic work relations? And I don't remember what the, I have to look. I Again, I, I gave Raizuk your 10, 10 or 11 topics and we picked a few. So I have to, to remember which ones we actually decided on in the end. Um, okay, any other questions on this week on general issues. Someone last week, but I don't see her, Lisa had asked about minimum wage. Um, I still don't think we're going to get to it, but I will send out articles on it. Um, last week, I'd mentioned that minimum wage um, doesn't seem to exist in halacha in a classic sense, um, but that doesn't stop the fact that um, uh, Aaron Levine basically agrees with my um, point, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Levine agrees with the point, but does try to construct a halachic ethic around a minimum wage. Um, and uh, Rabbi Clapper was uh, was kind enough to send me uh, two relevant sources from Rav Henkin and from Rav Hershenson, um, uh, as well on the topic. Um, and uh, so I can send you know I can send out a link to his his share as well um, on sort of the broader issues if people want. Okay, there's another question here in the chat. One second. Um, Diane says I'm clear about the idea of a messenger. One second. Yeah. Why is this? Um, if the rules of payment do not apply in such a situation, why would someone choose to work in such a situation? So that's a good question, right? If the employer, employer can get off from paying the employee on time by hiring, hiring an agent, um, why would he do that? Um, now, that seems to be, right, I think, what, what is behind the Chavetz Chaim's um, claim, which is, um, you know, it's weird, but you definitely can't claim that the employee waived his rights unless he knew that he was waiving his rights because it's counterintuitive. Um, as to why they would accept it, I don't know. Um, it could be they're desperate, <laughs> which only sort of makes the question worse. Um, it could be that, I don't know, right? It could be that it was just the norm. I, I'm trying to think of a case, right? Um, you know, yeah, I mean, look, I, I guess you could say that let's say you have a very, very wealthy um you know, uh, sort of mega farmer, right? He, or um, he owns like, you know, uh, he's a corporate farmer. He owns 20, 50, 100 fields. Um, so he, um, you know, he knows that there are workers around who want a job. He wants them, you know, he wants to help them, right? Let's make this benevolent. He wants to help them get a job. He's happy to hire them. Um, but he knows that he can't, you know, he can't do it by himself. But 
he still doesn't trust, like he, he trusts, let's say his managers to hire the right workers, but he doesn't trust them with, you know, the millions of dollars he needs to pay for workers on his hundred fields. So, you know, he tells the, um, you know, he hires 10 people to go and hire workers for his individual fields and tells them, listen, tell the people to come for me for payment uh, when they're done. You know, it could be that the, the, the worker will say, listen, I understand that the, the head of this mega farm doesn't trust people with, with all the money needed to pay for, right? You know, you don't have a bank. So it's not like he can just say, you know, it'll be an automatic transfer to your account. He's paying you in cash, right? So maybe he doesn't want to give 100 you know, you know, his 10 managers, um, enough cash to pay a thousand workers because he doesn't trust them. So I, I don't know, right? It's hard to get into it, but I'm sure we could come up with a case where it's plausible psychologically. Um, it just seems uh, that the problem is, is that, you know, if it does don't apply in the situation and the, I mean, it does, if the person thinks that they're in a normal situation, you're saying, but if they if they're aware of it that there's a middleman there's a messenger here then it seems that the person could that the employer could get away with paying late or not paying at all you know because right so obviously he can't pay it all because he can't not pay it all that would be stealing at that point it really would be stealing but you're right <laughs> um at some level he would get out of it now in the modern context so again if it's a reasonable standard um and and this there is a discussion of this in in the post game that on that sheet um it's possible that you could say listen Maybe the whole point there is it's like, you know, an outside agent, but maybe a manager is not like that, right? Mm. Because the whole point is a manager is the boss, right? Meaning they're not the boss, boss's boss, but to the extent that like, let's say, you know, your manager um, ha can make the decisions of whether you get a raise or not, right? So clearly they are in control of that money, right? They have a budget. Right. And that might be enough to qualify the person as the boss and not a messenger of the boss. I, boss. I mean, it's true that they can be fired and they're answerable to somebody else. But if they control the finances, um, <coughs> right, maybe that's enough. Presumably that's enough. <laughs> um, um, you know, what would happen in an HR department? Um, right, that's a question here in the chat of an HR department where, like, let's say they don't directly control the finances. Right. Um, they just sort of make sure that everything is working properly. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that would be complicated, right? Because then it might be that, yeah, um, the, the letter of the law won't apply. And then you have to come back to, you know, the, the model that, um, that, that Chaim Seyman constructed around the Shulchan or Harav, which is, listen, maybe that's true, but that doesn't change the reality. That doesn't change the spirit of the law, right? Um, and yes, it's weaker to invoke spirit of the law than letter of the law because you can't, you know, sue them in the same way. But a holistic Torah perspective um, will still have something to say and place demands on, on someone in that situation. Um, maybe that's not enough, but at least it's the beginning of, a, of an approach. Um, okay, I think that was... Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you can look through, especially in the Pitchei Choshen, um, that I put, right, Rav Bloy is really, you know, he hammers things out in, a, in, a, in sort of the modern way. And that's why I put so much at the end. I never expected to read Rav Bloy inside, um, but I put him in case people wanted to sort of look through how does this manifest itself in, in practical halachic decisions. So he, you know, really fleshes it out in his footnotes. He goes through, okay, what type, this type of company, that type of company, this, you know, 
and he and he works through it. And um, and again, uh, Warhaftig, Shalom Warhaftig in his book also, and it's available on Otsar Chachma for anyone who has it, um, also fleshes out some of them. Um, again, I'll, I'll just pull it up for a second here again. Um, just uh, the reminder that at the top of the of the sheets, I put a uh, a general reading list for the course and also specifically um, on this topic. So if people are interested in right here, uh, right, Benny Brown's The Chavetz Chaim on Delayed Wages Toward a Modernization of Halakhic Labor Law, Chaim and Samen's Talmud Studies, Ethics and Social Policy, a case study in the age of, wa uh, of wage payment and an argument for Leo Lamdanut, Neo Lamdanut rather, that should have been, um, the, on the Olamot website, they have a, uh, a treatment of this under Biyomot Titian Tzcharo. Um, Shalom Warhaftik has it in Dinei Avodah B'Mishpat Evri. Um, Avad Chesed Bel Chavetz Chaim is devoted to this and Petri Choshen. So I gave you plenty of follow-up sources um, for sort of fleshing out the practical um, implementation, uh, you know, uh, the, the practical issues if you, uh, if you want to look at it. Um, um, and if anyone wants copies of the articles, just email me. Right? You have my email, it's on the top of the source sheet or WhatsApp me. I'll put my um, I'll put my WhatsApp in in again, though for for articles it's probably better to um, to email me. Um, but I'm happy to send you. I have most of these emails, uh, most of these articles accessible um, in a in on PDF, and I can send it to anyone who wants. Um, not the not the um, not the Schnall book. That one, you know, uh, I I have the physical book, uh, but the rest of them I have, and I can send it to you. And I sent my number if, if WhatsApp is easier for you. Yeah, the number um, is in the chat right now. Yeah. Um, and again, the email is at the top of the source sheet. So as long as you have the source sheet, um, you can just email me that and I'll send you any articles that, uh, that I quoted there. Um, okay. Is that it? Any other questions? That's an hour, or hour and a quarter. Um, oh, wait, one more. Uh, well, Amina says, right, oh, that this reminds... Um, Right. So as I said, right, it, it is definitely true. Uh, the question here is um, that um, in other cases, such as in marriage, we have cases of limitations of who can appoint a shliach and who cannot. <clears throat> um, presumably, the, the limitations don't apply in the same way here, just because um, uh, the standards for, um, for agency are higher in ritual law and in marriage law than they are in monetary law. Um, so presumably in monetary law, um, the standard for who can be an agent is uh, is less demanding, um, but uh, it is possible, um, especially given the halachic importance here of of agency and what it changes about the halacha, that there might be might be limitations. But but it seems to be that it's um, that the that pretty much anyone, at least let's say an adult um, Jew, could be an agent for these uh, for these purposes. Um, but uh, yeah, but it, but it, you know, but it, it's true that in many areas of halacha, we we do limit um, who can be an agent, and it's possible that here we would have uh, we would have similar models. Um, okay, that's nine fifteen. So I guess let's call it a, a stop for tonight. Um, thank you, as usual, Evie, and uh, thanks thank to everyone you. for coming. And I look forward to learning with you uh, next week. Thank <laughs> you so much, uh, Rabbi Ziering. Uh, this is a very interesting second class, and I can't wait for uh, next Wednesday. We'll be together again. And thank you also to everyone who joined us here today on Zoom, on Facebook, and also on Drisha Live. Uh, our next live class is tomorrow, Thursday, at March 3rd at 8 p.m. And it's the first class in the series, The Invention of the Seven-Day uh, Week, with uh, Dr. Ezra Zuckerman-Sivan. 
you're uh, always welcome to find out more information about other classes and upcoming classes, um, as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes. You can also watch all of the, all of the classes uh, live on um, www.drisha.org live. Thanks again, Rabbi Zering. Looking forward to seeing you uh, next Wednesday and hopefully everyone else as well. And we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Okay, great. Have go. a good day, everyone. Bye, okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.